Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. Yeah, American pop is so sick, man. I just love jamming out to rock and roll music. Yeah, yeah, fuck. I, you know, that's called American pop, but you know, it should be called American rock. Call that rock music. <laughs> should be called American pot because uh, the way this movie <laughs> looks, uh, the guy who made this must have been smoking something crazy. <laughs> I mean, even to watch this thing, you got to be freaking out of your mind, just smoking out the whole house, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gotta hotbox the house for this one. <laughs> Damn, I bet you could smoke weed like for like a short period of time in theaters. From like, oh yeah, no, you could. There, there's that Rosenbaum essay that we uh, linked in our 420 episode description uh, about oh, how people used to light up in the movies, and it uh, opened people's aesthetic uh, possibilities. Oh, God uh, damn, what a, what an era. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's coming if theaters come back that'll happen that'll happen yeah i think it's already happening i mean we got the virtual cinema everyone's hotboxing their rooms while they're in that <laughs> real cinemas are never coming back maybe the drive-ins but people are going to be hotboxing in those too so you know what true the future of cinema is weed that's true have you been to the virtual cinema no what <laughs> uh nothing really looked that i mean like tomaso was playing and you know shout out to kino lorber but i'll wait till that's you know otherwise online i don't want to i don't want to sign up for a specific screening of a movie that i'm watching through my computer like that's stupid that's sense. why i'm never gonna see the zia anger my first film thing is i don't want to do that i, I want to see sure. a movie at a certain time if it's at a theater you know there was, um, I tried at the beginning of quarantine, there was like some fucking, uh, Paul Bartel film that was like really hard to find that they were doing a screening of that I tried to watch. It's called Shelf Life. It's about like, um, mm. kid, like these kids get trapped in their bomb shelter for 30 years from like the sixties to the nineties. And their parents die and they're just like in arrested development. Um, but like the film was itself was unreleased, but it was just like dog shit. It was like the lighting was terrible. It was too, too bad to continue. And I just like it, the whole process of getting like ready for it was very frustrating. It feels dumb. If I'm going to do that, I want to be in a real place. That's true. That's true. Damn, and the movie sucked anyways. That's Yeah, no, I tapped out uh, like within the first 15. If you don't know by now, you're listening to Extended Clip. It's episode 56. We don't need to say our names anymore, do we? Nah, we're the podcast without a name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the double feature this week's American Pop by Ralph Bakshi, 1981, and The Wedding Singer, uh, the 1998 Adam Sandler film directed by Frank Karachi. Both of these directors are kind of returning champions. Bakshi, we did an episode on Cool World. I quote-unquote lost the episode. Um, And then uh, with Karachi, obviously, we have done Click and uh, talked about the Sandler joints quite a bit across our first season and change here on Extended Clip. Um, Had you guys seen these ones before? 
I'd seen The Wedding Singer before as a, a true Sandler truther, true fan. I, you know, I've seen most of his work. I have not seen uh, the Bakshi. I am the reverse. I have seen American Pop. I like, oh no, I love Bakshi so much. This is probably one of my favorites of his stuff. I've seen it like maybe a few times uh, the last like two years. It has really great vibes to just hang out with. And uh, yeah, it was my first time with Wedding Singer. So since we lost our Bakshi episode last time we did one, JT, uh, what what is it about animator, director, uh, filmmaker Ralph Bakshi that draws you to his uh, filmmaking so much? He's horny and he knows that society is fucked up. Um, yeah. And I mean, like, aside... This dude's messed up. <laughs> aside from... Uh, like that type of thing. I feel like there are a lot of like adult animation in general um, is like a, is like a difficult subject area where I feel like a lot of it is just like just cartoons that say fuck. And there is a lot of that yeah. type of like dirty and like very crude juvenile like level of adult humor present in Bakshi stuff that I absolutely fucking love. But like along with that, there's the dirty underground like gritty reality where like i I think in a lot of bakshi films there will be like weird psychedelic experimentation that's kind of like goofy and fun but then there will be a lot of very horrifying things like in american pop like a lot of drug addiction just people get murked left and right bakshi's uh real crazy and like if more people were like bakshi animation would be a lot more interesting yeah, for sure. I mean, most of my exposure to quote unquote adult animation is like the, um, you know, banner ads on porn sites where you see like Bart fucking uh, Marge and, you know, you're tempted to click, but you know better, you know, from your years on the internet. Uh, that Those paths lead to no good. It's not really hot either. It's more of like a, it's like, I, what would it look like if they yeah. fucked, you know, pure fan fiction perspective. You're just on deviant art and you're just popping character names in your head. Which combination do I want to see? Do I want to see uh, Lenny fucking Carl, perhaps? Uh, I don't know. But, you know, I think that Bakshi's films take adult animation uh, much further than that uh, in, in an artistic sense. No, definitely. I, mean, I feel like with this one, maybe more so than Cool World, um, I feel like this movie's, uh, as you know, even though you do have the woman with the you know, voluptuous bodies as Bakshi likes to draw them. This is a pretty respectable movie on all fronts. Um, just in terms of like, it's kind of like it's uh, attempts of narratorization, narratorization, kind of like how it's just trying to squeeze in like the, the American lifestyle into like a very compact and quick paced, you know, 90 minutes. And uh, there's, there's a lot to admire here in like in, in animation and just form as well. I mean, in terms of the narrative structure, it is kind of an anomaly of this kind of epic that is condensed into 95 minutes but doesn't feel rushed. You know, every time a scene ends or sometimes mid-scene, a character's age and the era of pop music changes and you see it evolve alongside the family evolving over time until... You know, the end of the film, I mean, to to give a uh, more specific uh, idea of what the film is, a, a Jewish Russian family uh, comes to America in, uh, like, I guess around the turn of the century, and over a few generations, uh, their story kind of reflects and represents the story 
of American popular music, or more specifically, a story of American pop music, as you can't fit everything into one movie. Uh, and yeah, so this thing's jam-packed with like really great music cues that are supposedly written by the characters that we see playing them. And Bakshi was able to, you know, leverage his clout from being an icon of adult animation from his early films. Uh, that he was able to get the rights to a lot of these songs on the low. You know, the the soundtrack rights cost only like a million dollars or something like that, and there are huge songs throughout this movie. Uh, and, you know, to get the soundtrack released with everything involved would have cost, you know, hundreds of millions. And that's why the only soundtrack uh, for the film has, you know, 10 songs or something like that rather than the 50 that appear. And in terms of like the soundtrack, I like how it interwe like how each perspective and generation we're getting has a different type of relationship with uh the music that they're interacting with the most fucked up and interesting story but probably the most annoying character is uh tony who's like the real hippie one uh before he has his son pete just like fucking like do it like his like connection to music like feels like the most sleazy and like kind of insignificant to like him because he just sort of becomes like some fucked up hippie <laughs> yeah i love it. i i like him because he starts off in you know uh kind of the Mad Men era you know and he, he's kind of a a mix uh that you would kind of see on that film almost or in that show rather oh boy do not want to cross my wires on that uh difference <laughs> but uh like the that intersection of like the beat you know uh hip culture and the you know teen angst that's still spilling over from the 50s like we watched last week in rebel without a cause you know especially that red jacket that he wears obviously calls back to james dean in that yeah and i, I love the sequence where he yells at uh his siblings for watching television watching tv tv you can watch if it's on or off i shut it off you're still watching tv turn it on oh what are you watching show we're watching a show a show your brains is falling out like teeth did you get your quarter huh did the brain fairy leave you a quarter last night <laughs> i've definitely done that to, to my brothers before it's like you know wake up you're being brainwashed and you don't even realize it that's the sad part you don't even care <laughs> oh man the scene where he quits his job as a dishwasher is so fucking funny where he's being dramatic, yeah. like talking, I am fucking hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, you love to see that because like in the beginning, the first generation, you see the father, uh, you know, is lost to religion. He wants to finish the prayer before uh, whatever is coming uh and then he loses his mother to like a factory fire. And uh, so, you know, you lose your parents to religion and work. So you turn to entertainment and hustling and avoiding having a quote unquote real job uh, as long as you can. So that when one of these characters ends up having to wash some dishes just to pass over to the next day. Uh, yeah, obviously you can't last more than a night uh, working at a restaurant. Hey, you're not going to make it in this business, Tony. You can't sing. You play guitar like a duck. That's cause my hands is permanently puckered. No, yeah, and I think I like what ba Bakshi... How do you say Bakshi? 
Am I saying I, right? I've been going back and forth between Bakshi and Bakshi. Bakshi. I've heard um, both. Bak, bok choy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Dude, bok- that's messed up. That's not your food to joke about. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Redact that. But um, ba- I like what Bakshi's doing here. Dude, you're being straight up redacted right now. <laughs> <laughs> redacted. Redact that, please, but don't censor me third. That's all I ask. Bakshi, what Bakshi's doing here, I think, is really great. Kind of showing how uh, different attitudes changed over different generations. How, um, yeah, you know, you had the working and the religion in the previous generations. And as further generations go on and on, they want to work less and less. And, you know, they become um, more interested in, you know, becoming an artist. And that's kind of, that's not a very boomer, right? It's like, oh, you know, like... These, these kids, they don't want to work. But it's just like, I think it's realizing that there's more to life than all, all of that bullshit. You know, now I yeah, sound like course. the dope head, <laughs> Tony, the songwriter. But, no, that's uh, the great maybe, part of this film is like in every subculture, it's like you don't identify with what the character is doing, but you kind of see where you would fit into each of those chapters and how they rhyme mm-hmm. across time. Uh, like how you must remember this, the song that's, you know, famous from being in Casablanca is played as a character is enlisting for World War II, and then it comes back in that scene in New York where uh, the, you know, former hippie abandons his perhaps real but adopted son, the blonde kid, Uh, you know, that music swells up again, and then he becomes uh, the coke-dealing pimp who writes night moves at the end. I like that, like, Bakshi, like, sort of does a turn there where it seems like with Tony's drug use, it sort of seems a little bit moralizing about him, like, uh, like getting like fucking strung out on heroin. But then when we transition to like Pete's story, and he's just this fucking cool as shit drug dealer, and the Lou Reed music is playing, and there's like that sequence yeah. where he's like dancing through like razors in the background. <laughs> it's so like he, he 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 does the flip where it's like actually drug dealing is really fucking cool. <laughs> no, yeah. I love that last act because at that point, basically all the ties to the family are cut, you know, and that is when the realism goes out the window and the backgrounds become, you know, more abstracted because there are so many beautiful backdrops in this that have so much detail in them. And like, uh, as well as just like the establishing shots that it will show uh, for just half a second that have just so much detail. And then you go into this third act where... Uh, this man is just walking around with a pimp walk and dealing coke and all the backgrounds are abstracted and people are just dancing and vibing and like the family is gone and reality is just gone as well but he's still just chugging along and that's the only way that any of these characters attain real success within the entertainment industry is just to completely leave all that is you know uh previously believed to be real which is like their family story and their roots behind just to you know deal coke and write night moves which is still cool Yeah, yeah, and um, to speak to, you know, kind of your t- talking about the animation, I like a lot of the stuff that Bakshi's playing around with here, how he'll intercut real-life image images and how sometimes they'll be the background contrasted with, you know, his animated figures. Yeah. Or, uh, th- or they'll just be still backgrounds and, the you know, the animated figures will walk throughout them. There's a lot, you know, going on here to keep you, keep you entertained, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of... Uh, 
I don't see this in many animation movies, and I'm an animation novice, of course, but I feel like he's using the form to its full potential here. You know, he's yeah. playing around enough to, you know, justify this not being live action because I'm a, I'm a huge live action guy, but Bakshi knows how to draw. What can I say? Yeah, I mean, like the inner play of archival footage, still photography, rotoscope is just amazing here. Like the scenes where a character will get on the bus and then you just have like really beautiful, what looks like it could be 16 millimeter photography outside the bus of the window, uh, just like real movie footage that looks great. And then you have this great expressionist rotoscope uh, drawing on top of it. And I don't know, just bending reality so far into expressionism uh, wherever he can, just like finding it in the edges of the frame, places to just go buck wild. And uh, yeah, the, I watched this one a couple of years ago and didn't like it quite as, I still liked it a lot, but I like it a lot more now, especially that I've seen more of Ralph Bakshi's work. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great fucking movie. Four bullets for me. But I'm going to go four bullets as well. I thought, I thought, you know, there's so much going on here to, you know, to it's like compact narrative, you know, teeming with so many uh, just events and life events condensed into a small amount of time. It kind of reminds me actually of uh, Oscar Micheaux's Within Our Gay. It's kind of a, a strange comparison, but it's like, it feels like Bakshi's trying to make, you know, kind of this grand statement about, you know, American life so far compacted into like this short, you know, piece of animation. But, um, you know, even though it results in a nice, you know, coke dealing Bob Seger montage, I still think there's a lot of value here. And uh, I just, I had a really good time with it. Uh, JT, what did you think? Yeah, I'm going to give this uh, four and a half bullets. This is maybe my favorite. If not, it's, it's definitely up there. I, it's a major vibes movie and I love that there are so many like great scenes where you can just soak in the animation and the musical score, um, together. And I feel like what it's working at, at a larger sense, I mean, I don't want to sound like the, one of those guys that's like music is my life, man. Like I couldn't like, <laughs> let, let me tell you, I couldn't live without music brother. Um, <laughs> but like it does an interesting job at showing the relationship that like one, like on a personal sense, uh, each generation has to like that type of music. And then also like culturally, I think one thing that across Bakshi's work that is really impressive is the digressions that he'll take in scenes where it's just showing like the broader, like culture around it. Like you'll see sort of like what mm -hmm. a dance hall would look like at the time, like people enjoying it and sort of like that connection that people make to music. And I think it does it in like, an earnest and fun way where I feel like this type of music movie gimmick could be really cheesy and bad, but it winds up being just slick as fuck and cool. Yeah. I mean yeah. like a, a, a movie where a character uh, writes Bob Dylan songs for a girl <laughs> scene, uh, before getting strung out on heroin is like, yeah, you could see a very cliched version of that, but I don't know. Bakshi pulls that off wonderfully. And, um, and it, Oh, go ahead. No, it's gonna. And if you're like me, you know, I didn't even know that was a Bob Dylan song, so that didn't really affect my judgment. Look out your window, and I'll be gone. You're the reason. To speak what you're talking about, how uh, Bakshi will, you know, go out of his way to like maybe give a um, a sense of of the times through environment. I also 
because that's that's good stuff too. But I also was surprised about like kind of the moments of characterization for his uh, you know protagonist throughout the movie. I found them um, really moving, and I, I you know especially that scene where I think Tony Dopehead Tony is just you know getting real emotional in a Kansas cornfield. It uh, it's it the moments of characterization. Um, in this movie are very effective, you know, especially for an animation. Oh, yeah. You know, not to oh, sound yeah. discriminatory. No, I think, but. I think, uh, real quick, I think another one of that that always gets me is when uh, the son, the, the generation before Tony, Benny, how his dad, uh, how Benny dies in World War II, just fucking like getting caught up playing piano. And there's that moment mm-hmm. there where you think, oh man, this, the Nazis kind of like, He's caught up in it and he's just, he's having a good time and then just plugs him right in the fucking back. Yeah. These Nazis are no good. Each time I've watched this, I am teased by that look that the Nazi gives when he's like swooning to the piano that Bakshi's going to try and pull some like nice core sympathy bullshit. (laughs) Uh, But then he just fucking shoots his ass. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Also, it has in common that Jefferson airplane song from a serious man for films about Jewish men in America getting high and doing music stuff, I guess. <laughs> There's some connections there. Yeah. All right, we'll be back. Working on a night movie. Dude, that, that, what a legendary um, needle drop of Third oh. Eye Blind in that movie. <laughs> One of the all-time greats. <laughs> That's where the Norm fan cam has to be. It has to be semi-charm type of life. <laughs> Uh, we're back on extended clip. Uh, that gives you a little preview about what I'm going to talk about. But what about you, Malcolm? What did you watch this week? Well, you know what? I'm you know I'm just I, I'm a guy with my finger on the pulse, whether I want it there or not. Um, and I and I saw that. <laughs> Dude, the pulse put my finger on it, and I did not. <laughs> I didn't voluntarily touch the pulse. It just my hand slipped while we were sleeping. But um, um, <laughs> but. I, um, Jesseline Maxwell, finally arrested, probably a psyop, you know, it's kind of anticlimactic at this point, but I just saw that two movies I've watched kind of tie into that. Um, the first one is The Evil Within, directed by J. Paul Eddy heir, Andrew Getty, um, about, uh, a tale about a lonely, um, a handicapped boy who, uh, starts talking to himself in the mirror and finds a, an evil version of himself that, um, that orders him to kill so that he doesn't have nightmares anymore. And what's the, the, the big thing in this movie is like the weird special effects. You know, you got like a, a scene where like, uh, you know, an evil demon puts a zipper on, a, on a, the back of a boy and zips him open and uh, just shit like that. And looking into the production history of this movie, I guess Andrew Getty um, built all of the special effects himself and said that the movie reflected on how he felt as a boy, which I thought was kind of weird because it's just... Um, a miserable boy being subjected to torture. Um, <laughs> so that's, I, I don't know, I thought that was kind of odd. But also he's dead too. Uh, he died before the movie got released. This movie took 15 years to make um, because I guess every special effect was handcrafted by him. I think he died due to meth and heart complications. Um, it's not a great movie, but it's definitely interesting. It's definitely very unpleasant too. Um, but it's I think it's a good curiosity. And then the second one, I, I, I revisit a master. I go to Jesus Franco and I watch Eugenie. And uh, Eugenie is literally about um, an island that uh, an older woman runs where she procures girls for satanic 
um, death sex ceremonies. Oh um, shit! And, <laughs> you know, you know, there's there's people who do that in real life, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Um, you know, Jess Franco's movies are always about depicting the realities around us that we're too <laughs> blind to look at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the 1970, you know, it's a nice piece of uh, perverted erotica, but now it's just it's gritty realism. But um, <laughs> but this movie is really good. Um, you know, you kind of I think Franco's just form, you know, just kind of like perverted voyeuristic form is on display here. All the sex scenes are like behind bed frame posts and stuff like that. And just uh, I, like it, it kind of sounds corny to say, but he has like a he'll you know he'll throw in tantalizing camera movements. He he uh, he. Uh, Franco, you know, inhabits the rhythm of sex in his filmmaking, uh, which I feel like is a dumb thing to say. But, it, you know, I think it's true. I think if anyone earns that, it's him. This movie's good. Um, what did you guys watch this week? I'm following up on last week. I talked about uh, the number 23, and uh, that wow. was tantalizing. That discussion was tantalizing <laughs> enough. Uh, to make me finally pull the trigger on uh, Joey Shoes, uh, the number 23, 2007, uh, Jim Carrey. Um, and it was like, it's it's good. Like, it's, it's all right. Um, it's definitely really? like, I don't know. It's in, like, I, I predicted last time that it would be very much so in like the eight millimeter vein of doing like some weird dark gritty shit and it was in that like style which i think was really appealing it's like um the story gets like really goofy um but like in a fun kind of a way like i'm willing to buy into a lot because it's like i don't know a fucking silly little movie um but there are some obviously really really hokey parts there's like a recurring like jim carrey is like this dude who like finds this book, the number twenty three. Um, his uh, wife uh, finds it on at a bookstore um, on his birthday, and then he like starts reading into it. He's like, "Shit, this is a lot like my life," and uh, becomes obsessed <laughs> with it. Like, there's like some weird numerology, the number twenty three, where like everything like all of these connections are to this specific number and that the number sort of rules his life at a certain point. And that like the paranoia and conspiratorial thinking are very fun. And I like movies about like engaging with that type of thinking and like the, the detriment that it can kind of do. But there are like a lot of like, I don't know, hokey bits. Like there's a, um, there's like a dog that is recurring that like Jim Carrey is like a dog catcher and uh it's like <laughs> evil and sort of incites the event for him and it like pops up a few times and it's just very hard to make like a real life sort of like i, I feel like what's probably like a pitbull mix kind of look ominous when it's just sort of like chubby and sitting on its ass <laughs> um but uh do do fellows want to hear this sick twist in this movie that happens Please, please, um, please. It turns out uh, that Jim Carrey wrote the book himself. He was <laughs> uh, he. It was when he was in his twenties. He went like ape. When he was twenty three. <laughs> uh, I don't think exactly, but that's that's a really a missed opportunity on their part. 
Um, but yeah. he accidentally like kills some woman after like his parents like both like fucking died, and then he um like goes apeshit crazy, like writes about this murder that he committed and like burying this woman, and like some other guy winds up going to fucking prison and he writes it all over the walls of a hotel, and so then he uh he he tries to kill himself and he falls out of a window and that damages his brain uh so that the psychiatrists they discover all this writing and they think it's fake that he didn't actually kill anyone and he doesn't have any memory um of it so they're like oh well i guess he's fine now (laughs) he can live a normal life (laughs) uh and they just sort of send him on his way so he doesn't know it and it's like I don't know. I don't think like there are a lot of movies that I feel like could be like an interesting like examination of like trauma and memory with this. This is not it. It's just kind of fun. Uh, but what about you, Eddie? <laughs> um, I went back to a pod favorite dirty work of Norm MacDonald film. Uh, directed by Bob Saget. And, you know, I don't know if I mentioned this on pod, but I remember talking to Malcolm about this when I first watched it, that Bob Saget's direction is kind of, like, incompetent at times. But I think mm-hmm. upon rewatch, you're kind of expecting those moments ahead of time, and then you kind of realize the accidental beauty that he stumbles upon in some of his choices. Uh, obviously, the placement of the needle drops is iconic, <laughs> semi-charmed life, of course. Uh, also, Dirty Deeds Done Cheap during the montage when him and Artie Lang are defacing the apartments is just one of my favorite scenes. And the uh, colors of like the walls in those apartments all of a sudden kind of look beautiful. And you realize you're just on board with this pretty shoddy filmmaking because the performances and the script are just so fucking funny. And you just have so many of the funniest people ever in this movie. You know, Norm, Artie, Jack Warden, Don Rickles, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler. I think this was Chris Farley's last role. And, yeah, uh, you know, it's uh, it's quite a send off, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, dirty work. Come on. It's it's just one of the funniest movies there is. So check it out if you haven't. And if you have why not just throw it on again, right? <laughs> I also checked out a few episodes of Norm MacDonald's uh, Netflix talk show, which is quite charming. I, I am a fan of it. Oh, yeah. I think what you're talking about with uh, Saget's kind of maybe lazy di- direction, I feel like if, you know, if you, you make a little equation in your head, right, that, uh, you know, kind of the beauty of Norm's um, comedy is that it seems so effortless, and, you know, maybe maybe that lazy filmmaking in the movie, maybe it just turns into effortlessness. You know what I mean? Maybe just to go along with the ride. And, I, you know, I yeah. think, I mean, it's the movie's funny, period. And that's what it's made to do. So, but, you know, maybe maybe if your genius is like that, maybe you could even squeeze a little bit more enjoyment out of it. And you got Adam Sandler in one scene uh, as the devil uh, in the same year as The Wedding Singer, 1998, our next film. What a transition. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> didn't plan it ahead of time. Definitely didn't just see Adam Sandler's name on Letterboxd uh, <laughs> under dirty work and remember that. Yeah. He's in the movie for like five seconds. Not yeah, even worth great. mentioning in dirty work. But no, yeah. it's great. His scene's great. Well, because he's in there with Gary Coleman, but then Gary Coleman gets a second scene towards the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fuck. I forgot about that. 
Um, speaking of someone who seems like it might be a cameo, but gets a second scene at the end, man, Steve Buscemi in this film, one of his best, uh, roles in the Sandler verse for sure. Oh yeah. How he bookends this movie is, is beautiful. And when you, yeah. when you, you know, kind of not that reveal that he's singing at the end is that the whole cherry on top, you know, but yeah. not to get ahead of ourselves. Hey buddy, I'm not paying you to hear your thoughts on life. I'm paying you to sing. Well, I have a microphone. And you don't. So you will listen to every damn word I have to say! I mean, so, The Wedding Singer, um, what is it about? It's about Adam Sandler. Uh, He is a (laughs) wedding singer who used to be in a rock band, and he's left at the altar uh, for material reasons. And on this show, on Extended Clip, we don't care about all that (laughs) material shit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're we're not materialists, first and foremost. Yeah. Uh, Ever done a little dialectical materialism or whatever? (laughs) (laughs) All sounds diabolical to me, dude. That's diabolical. That's more like it. Uh, but anyway, so after being left at the altar, uh, he then falls in love with his co-worker, played by Drew Barrymore, and when he realizes how much of a total D-bag her fiancé is, he realizes that he uh, that he must break up their wedding, and uh, because obviously they are meant to be together, and it's as simple as that, but frankly, I feel like it gets a little convoluted like to set up the finale. I don't know, I feel like the, uh, not to get ahead of myself, uh, but like the transition into that third act definitely could be a little streamlined in comparison to how quick some of the other Sandler movies in this era go, but uh, it's still a really, really fucking good movie. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree that I feel like this is maybe, this is Sandler in schmaltz mode, this is a very schmaltzy Mm -hmm. movie on rewatch, and maybe I like it a little bit less on rewatch, I still like it a lot, but I was like... You know, maybe maybe I don't believe in love as much as Adam Sandler, does. but um, <laughs> but um, I as a you know as a Sandler fan, I think uh, this is interesting. And you know, Click operates this way. I haven't seen Fifty First Dates, but I, I imagine it operates this way too, where we get to see um, Adam Sandler in charisma mode. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, as a romantic lead, and I guess Click, you don't really get that romantic lead, but you, you get more of a Frank, Frank Capra husband. Mm-hmm type performance but um here you know he's a uh, you know the noble man with uh you know he's always he always looks teary-eyed in this movie oh, like, yeah. a, like a true heartthrob does and uh it's just it's it's interesting to see him pull off some of this charm and uh i i you know in some of these musical sequences i feel like uh, he definitely achieves what he's going for yeah no i watched uh 51st dates as like a pre-game to this and I like it really softened me up because Fifty First States tore my heart out with how sweet it was. And this, like, I, this again, I'm learning how to love again through Adam Sandler. But like, it's uh, it's interesting to see him like go charm mode and see that he can fuck. Uh, yeah. It's I don't yeah. know. I feel like you normally think of the classic sort of schlubby kind of like Dad Sandler. But this, like, he's really putting on the moves in this. And, like, I don't know, you can, you can see it working out. I always, before, like, pre-Sandler pill, it's like the, the, like the bullshit thing is like, oh, man, how does this schlub get all these hot women? And, like, in uh, Wedding Singer and uh, Fifty First Dates, you can really see that, that charm. That's the reason. 
Yeah, no, I think the uh, the mid two thousands period is where he's at his most like sentimental, and the the romances in his films seem the most sincere. You know, uh, you know, it's not like the early period romances with characters like Veronica Vaughn, where it's like very uh, traditional like comedy side mm-hmm. romance. In this film, I think is kind of a uh, predecessor to films like Fifty First Dates, which I rewatched this week and is absolutely lovely, uh, and like Punch Drunk Love and Click, and uh, you know, in general, I guess you take out Anger Management and Longest Yard, and you have a like mid to late two thousand Sandler period where it's all very sentimental and sincere. Uh, in a way that outside of this film, we hadn't really seen from him before. And, you know, it's varying degrees of success, but I think this film really works for a lot of the same reasons that those later films would work for. Yeah, and, you know, there's a, it's, a lot about it, this movie is pleasant, even though, you know, you do get your um, your sad moments, you know, his iconic, uh, you know, Just Shoot Me song. But even that, you know, it feels kind of like a soft version of sadness, right? You know, you don't really get... You know, you you're away from real depression here, right? Because yeah. we don't want to we don't want any of that here. We want to have a good time. We want a nice <laughs> romantic comedy. We want to charm women with our guitar playing skills. And I I hate to out myself as being so partial to the concept of late style, but like this kind of fits into the chronology for later films calling back to it in an interesting way. You know, like I was watching this and I was thinking about the 80s nostalgia that's in Grown Ups 2, you know, where the the theme of that party is the 80s. And obviously Sandler's singing throughout his films uh, and like the moving from having Billy Idol in the third act. uh, Of course, that predates his odd assemblages of stars that he would always put in his films, uh, especially, you know, in the 2000s and 2010s, but also moving on to singing Billy Joel at the end of a movie with The Week Of a few years back, you know? And uh, it's like all of these kind of pieces just fit together within the Sandler verse, you know, Uh, and also being stood up at a wedding uh, just like in Just Go With It, which I also rewatched this week, the Dennis Dugan classic. No, I think this this movie uh, establishes um, Sandler's love for 80s culture and 80s music, particularly in his movies. And, you know, um, just like even, you know, American pop, I would say this movie's definitely very music heavy, you know, let alone from Adam Sandler's kind of musical performance, but it is uh, stockpiled with 80s hits, you know, throughout the movie. And, you know, I, I feel like maybe to someone I like less, I wouldn't let them get away with that as much. But, I mean, this movie's going full throttle, 80s pastiche. It's committing 100%. And so, you know, for them to back away from those hits maybe wouldn't be a, tr- a full committal to the style. So, you know... And some of those songs are good. I like 80s pop. So, you know, I'm going to let it slide. I mean, Karachi's deployment of these needle drops alongside like his use of that, you know, color palette uh, is all very nostalgic and skillfully used. You know, Uh, I think, you know, dropping in the cure and psychedelic furs and stuff like it just it's going to hit no matter what kind of. And it works good dialogue that dates it at the time such as uh you know a joke about donald and ivanka or woody and mia being ideal (laughs) couples that stay together uh obviously you know a joke but uh, the joke is exaggerated over time um that's let's see that's jewish dialectics right there (laughs) that is jewish dialectics right there that's very true you know um (laughs) 
Oh, at the wedding that he gets stood up at, they're playing uh, Don't Stop Believing" on strings. <laughs> and that and yeah. the Sopranos finale are the only two instances where that song is really good. Wow. Spoken like a true family guy hater. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, all right. You know, just to speak to that, I guess, you know, you have Journey, right? Don't Stop Believing." You know, kind of corny, right? But, um... I mean, what's Adam Sandler, but not the people's champ, you know, a, you yeah. know, a populist movie maker. And I mean, it, it's reflected in all areas of his films to, you know, what music he chooses to even the environments he creates. I mean, I feel like uh, one thing I liked about this movie is that like um, everyone always has his back. Like he's not he like he has his friend Alan Covert, which delivers a funny performance. Oh, one of the heftier roles for Alan Covert within the filmography. No. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have, you know the grandma who, you know, he could talk things out through. And uh, even, you know, even the discussion at the end when he's telling the plane, you know, the people on the plane, why he's, you know, going back to break up a marriage. Everyone's interested. And, and you know, you get, you have this communal aspect. And, uh, you know, it just shows uh, Sandler's just, he's the people's champ. I'm just, I'm just giving you examples at this point. The main chunk of this movie, though, uh, before I think it gets a little bogged down, consists of Adam Sandler trying to woo Drew Barrymore, whether or not he'll admit it, while helping her plan her upcoming wedding. Uh, and their chemistry is great, just like in Fifty First Dates. I think Drew Barrymore is like one of the better uh, Sandler you know, leading ladies, not to use too much outdated terminology. <laughs> the best broad for Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> No, Barrymore's she's real charming in this, and uh, you know it fits kind of the sweet nature of this movie. She knows exactly what type of movie she's in, and kind of uh, you know is perfect. You know, hits those perfect romantic comedy moments that you need for this to work. And uh, I mean, it's 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 there's more characterization here than you know maybe some more traditional romantic comedies that would just focus on you know the schlubbiness of Adam Sandler and his you yeah. know, shitty job and mullet. Also, I love just like the recurring bits of his movies, like in Billy Madison, the grandma says, you know, uh, if your friend's sick, you shouldn't be masturbating so much. And in this one, <laughs> his grandma's giving him shit for having, uh, you know, a penis of a certain size. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me help you practice until you are. Now, I'll be a young girl and you'd be Robbie. So ask me out. <laughs> I don't want to do this. Hello, sir. Hello. Is there something you want to ask me? Okay. Would you like to go to dinner with me sometime? No. Your penis is too small. That was, you know, that was great. Yeah, it's the, and that's that's like a good stand-up bit. You know, I could expand out that. It's like having to show your penis to a new person. It's like, yeah, that's 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 no fun, especially if you think about it in those terms. Just like I have to show it. You know, <laughs> damn, we got a real Louis C.K. over here. <laughs> yeah. Oh my! Oh, don't get me started on my dick. My dick, and like I'm holding the mic, like, a <laughs> <laughs> and you're like fucking smacking your kids with the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Doing kids, an act you know? out, smacking, smacking <laughs> your kids with the mic dick. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm smacking my kids with the dick. I mean, not really. <laughs> not really. I would never do that. 
Stand up, stand up lives through podcasting. That's mm-hmm. what we're learning here today. Just describing act outs. <laughs> Dude, that's yeah, Louis' way to return. Is pretend do. the stool is his kid. <laughs> Not even doing a Louis C.K. voice. Just doing yeah. a voice. <laughs> oh, I was doing my Louis C.K. voice, but I guess it wasn't that uh, good. No, <laughs> I was talking about myself. I was talking I'm about joking. myself. I- I'll take it personally. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I don't even know how you would do a Louis C.K. voice, so I'm not going to try. But yeah, I don't listen to him. Yeah, that's true. Also, I after all that junk came out about him in the main in the lamestream media, I erased it from my head. That's funny because I became a huge fan because of how he was crucified <laughs> by these liberal outlets, and even Joe Biden, his daddy, his liberal daddy, after he you know shilled for Hillary in the 2016 election, wouldn't even except his pocket chains from him from him so damn him um, and woody yeah <laughs> to to get back to the wedding singer <laughs> um <laughs> i uh one thing that i mean again as i have become a sandler head a recurring theme that has emerged throughout his work is just the generally a desire for a simple life and even though like obviously he's like blown up and become such a big star like like with grown-ups becoming obsessed with just sort of like palling around and just fucking around and hanging out this i really love that um part of his aim is just and one of the reasons why his like ex-fiance leaves him is because he doesn't strive for anything more and i think there's something beautiful there in like having like a big sort of like rom-com thing where i feel like a lot of the stakes there are usually people are more like careerist or like striving and yet again uh sandler scores one for the slacker that's like hey i just want to be a (laughs) wife guy i just want to shack up I just want to fucking sing like that's all I can ask for. And it's really nice to just sort of see that just like, man, I just want to just get by kind of the values. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it kind of avoids that kind of like, cause he is an aspiring artist. It kind of, um, avoids kind of like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm an artist and I need to get my voice out. You know, I need to move to the big city, you know, in order to get my voice heard. He, you know, he has uh, no real desire to leave where he's from and, and the movie, you know, shows that's perfectly fine. And, you know, that's not something usually, I, you know, you see in movies. You know, movies telling you to be content. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> no, I, lo- I also should- love Alan Covert's arc in this because in the beginning he just basically <laughs> says that he wants to be Fonzie. And then at the end when Adam Sandler's really down in the dumps in that kind of second act break, he's like, you know what? Actually, I don't even want to be Fonzie because Fonzie gets old and that's creepy. And uh, that's what gets Adam Sandler to turn it around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that sweet moment between the old, the lonely old man at the bar oh, embracing Alan it. Covert when he asks for it, you know, very sweet, and it works. It works. I, I described that scene glibly, but like between you know the old man and the uh, hungry heart soundtrack, like I I may have almost shed a tear. I didn't quite, but I almost shed a tear at that scene. Damn. Almost. Oh, if you did, if you, mm. if you did, it's okay, man. No, 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 no. <laughs> You'd be Almost. in big trouble if you did. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> man card revoked. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> nah, dude. Men are allowed to cry at. Well, I guess only at click. That's the one. Sandwich. At click, yeah. Allowed to cry yeah. At. Now but wait. Yeah, let's, let's 
didn't cry through most of Fifty First Dates' second half. <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 talk bro code real quick, right? Can we talk okay. bro code? <laughs> okay. Um, how do, how do we feel about Sandler breaking bro code in the movie? In in what way? Oh, Is to he, snitch uh, on the dude. Yeah, snitch on the dude for cheating. That's no good, right? He's doing it to but get pussy. Like, actually, <laughs> but didn't he actually oh. not even like snitch technically? That's true. He didn't. He just really. has that to hold over him. He doesn't actually snitch on him. That's true. You do. You know. This is actually kind of like a, a barstool epic bro moment, kind of abiding by the Bible, <laughs> the lad Bible, if you will. <laughs> uh, where you know Sandler, he may appear on the surface to be putting a hoe above a bro, but he's not <laughs> quite selling out the bro for smashing all of that grade A meat as he calls it or whatever that's grade a top choice meat yeah which is a, that's a bad term for women and stuff like oh that. No, damn that was- we should really <laughs> flip the head on like doing like bechdel test level analysis where we like uh, compare movies to the bro code and the lad bible <laughs> as it stack up <laughs> god you know how many unfollows we'll get a day people are scrolling the feed and they'll say extended clip retweeted and it's from lad bible we're gonna get all right we're gonna get some unfollowers but we're gonna get a lot of new followers a lot of new cool fans we could say new cool words around you know normalize being okay with a little religion in your life if we can't sit and read our book the lad bible then what what do we have in this life if not a guiding light <laughs> you know um i i noticed that uh drew barrymore mentions god in this movie mentions that she's religious herself you know that yeah. you shouldn't you shouldn't tongue kiss in the house of god and, <laughs> and that's how i knew she was a good woman for sandler to marry yeah also sandler very upfront with uh his judaism in this movie which is like less seen in his early period but uh fitting so snugly into that bar mitzvah scene also called to mind him wearing the giant prosthetic honker in uh just go with it in the beginning of that which he you know that i I think we got to go back to i'll watch just go with it again we got to talk about the rhinoplasty in that film get get a jewish scholar up in here yeah, that his job's a plastic surgeon. Yeah. Mm. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, boy, I want to talk about that bar mitzvah scene because I think that's one of my favorite moments in the movie. Yeah. And it kind of harkens back to kind of, uh, you know, Billy hero Madison. Sandler. Billy and Millie Madison, you know, him peeing his pants for that kid, for the kid to fit in. Especially after you have that moment of him calling a bunch of... Uh, fat people and dorks losers you know (laughs) it's just brian posein not even in makeup just like chill (laughs) (laughs) just people who wrote the movie probably yeah Um, but um (laughs) but um yeah that's a it's a real sweet moment you know and even you even get a little bit of that perversion when the kid grabs drew barrymore's ass to you know still let you know you're rocking with the Sandman. <laughs> I, I really like this film. It, I think, narratively has some shortcomings in comparison to some of the other stuff, like at its level. Uh, like I rank it with, you know, Sandy Wexler and The Week of, like very good movies that maybe are a little shaggier, but have kind of more uh, to offer in the weird, uh, way too deep readings of the Sandler flicks as I am like to do. So yeah, I'm, I'm shooting this one down with three and a half books. I, I think it's a very good movie. Uh, yeah. What about you guys? I'm going four bullets and, you know, like you said, this is a bit shaggy. 
Um, some of some aspects of it don't really work for me. You know, some of the '80s worship can kind of, you know, rub me in ways that I don't want to be rubbed. But um, you know, it's it's Sandler's real charming, and the overall mood is real. You know, it's real chipper, and uh, I think that over that overwhelms the other parts. You know, much more so. And you have some iconic Sandler moments too that kind of set the template for the rest of his career. I mean, there's no Fifty First Dates or other romantic comedies without you know this being this being a success. I mean, I like to think of the Wedding Singer, Fifty First Dates, and Blended as the true um, Before Sunset trilogy or whatever those hipster bullshit movies are. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, Barrymore Sandler winning combo, you know, makes me want to fall in love all over again. I'm hit. I'm hearing the wedding bells. What about you, JT? Um, yeah, I'm giving this one four bullets as well. Like during the whole flick i was like i I mean not like i i don't think about rating a movie too often during it um just it comes and goes but i was teetering on the edge of three and a half four i feel like 51st states definitely softened me up because the but the ending like i don't know it, it it got me to cry sandler singing that damn song uh and uh yeah. like i don't know that's that's worth something in my book um, a great flick, um, just again, enjoyable, like working my way, uh, for the first time through many of these Sandler flicks and just nice to sort of like, I don't know, having more of my experience be with later Sandler going to the earlier stuff now and seeing where his obsessions sort of grow out. And I think I really connect to this a lot as like a, a really good companion piece to click um and so i don't know it does it for me frank karachi almost said devin karachi and i think i said that last <laughs> time when he said like, click too oh, God. i think devin karachi is probably the second best like sandler director between this and click and like the water boy as well but uh yeah he's really good at uh the emotional manipulation and uh yeah you can email us extended clip podcast at gmail.com the movies for next week, uh, Inland Empire, the David Lynch film, and Night of the Ghouls by Ed Wood. Uh, who picked out th- these films, might you ask? Uh, our guest next week, Will Sloan of The Important Cinema Club and Michael and Us and Twitter. So we'll see you next week. Oh, uh, Extended Clip 69 is our Twitter. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at Pitchface Palace. I'm at Tallboy Thin Legs. All right, now, bye. Hell yes. Can't do that doing favors for people all the time, getting paid in meatballs. But you're above all that material bullshit. I don't know. We're living in a material world, and I am a material girl. Or boy. <laughs> <laughs>